And we are continuing our study in the gospel according to John. And we come today to the death of Christ. We are in the Passion Week in the most really significant time of the ministry of our Lord. Today we come to the day of preparation. So this is the word of the living God. And I'm going to begin in verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. After these things, Joseph of Arimathea, who was a disciple of Jesus, but secretly for the fear of the Jews, asked Pilate that he might take away the body of Jesus, and Pilate gave him permission. So he came and took away his body. Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. So they took the body of Jesus and bound it in linen cloths with spices, as is the burial custom of the Jews. Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. So because of the Jewish day of preparation, since the tomb was close at hand, they laid Jesus there. This concludes the reading of God's word. May God bless his word. Let's pray. Lord God, we do come to you now and pray that you would bless the time of preaching. Pray that you would bless uh, the preacher with your spirit, that you might move and speak as only you can, that your word would be true and every man a liar. Pray, God, for the saints today that ears would be open, hearts would be receptive. I pray today, God, specifically for any soul in this room that is yet to entrust themselves to Christ, anyone that is not a Christian, and pray, God, that you would speak directly to those souls today, that they would see the glory of God in Christ who has given his life as a sacrifice for sinners, that they would repent, that they would believe, that they would flee to the mercy of God. And I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I want to today make three theological points about the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, my goal in doing this is not that these um, points would be sort of abstract ideas, but my hope is that they would be very applicable to the life of the believer. As we were studying the book of Ephesians this past Wednesday, we began chapter 4, verse 1. And you can kind of, not perfectly, but kind of, 
basically break the book of Ephesians in half. The first half of the book, chapters 1 through 3, is a theological section that is filled with indicatives, true statements about who God is and what he's done for sinners. And chapters 4 through 6 are imperatives, commands of what we are to do. Indicatives, what is true. Imperatives, what to do. And as we talked about that night in the way Paul structures that book is that we must have the indicatives down if we're going to obey the imperatives. If the truth of the gospel is not driven deep in our hearts, that we know God and what he's done for sinners, then we're going to fail miserably when it comes to the imperatives, the things that we are to obey. So my goal today is to preach in the indicative mood. Sometimes you preach for a response. Sometimes you preach as a call to action. Today, I'm preaching simply for faith, that you would believe the truth here in this text, but that by believing, it would compel you and and spur you on to love and good works in the Lord Jesus Christ, that he might confirm faith, deepen those roots a bit today in what he has done for sinners. So that's the goal. God can be the judge if that is accomplished. The first thing I want to say, the first point is this. Jesus became a curse for us. Jesus became a curse for us. If we look back the text, if I can get there, in John 19. In verse 31. Since it was the day of preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain on the cross on the Sabbath day, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So as we've seen in this last week of Jesus' life, it is also the week of the Passover, one of the three high feasts for the Jews, one of the three pilgrimage feasts where they would travel to Jerusalem to celebrate what God had done in the past and to worship. And it was considered for them unclean to have a corpse exposed out in the day. Uh, It says in Deuteronomy chapter 21 in verse 22 that if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree His body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. So they saw this, that their day, their holy day, would be defiled if the men were stayed there dead on the cross or hanging there. A couple things to say about that verse. Number one, that the land itself, it said, would be defiled if a man was left hanging on the tree. The land would become defiled. But number two, any man hang on a tree is cursed by God. Any man that's hanged on a tree is cursed by God. Let that sit in for a moment as we think about Christ. Could Moses fathom, could the Jews fathom 1,500 years ago 
1500 years before the cross, that Messiah would come, the incarnate Son of God would come, God in the flesh would come, and he would become a curse for men by being hung on a tree. The very thing that they said would defile their holy day, God's Son came and did on behalf of sinners. I want to turn to Galatians chapter 3 as we think about this idea of Jesus becoming a curse. Paul brings this out here for us. Galatians 3 and verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. The first thing that we see is that every man apart from Christ is under the law's curse. What does that mean? Well, he said, curse be everyone who does not abide by all things written in this book. The law brings a curse on all men because it's impossible for us to keep it perfectly. It points out our unrighteousness. It points out our disobedience. It speaks to our condemnation, but it offers no hope. The law only brings condemnation. It brings no hope for the sinner. Thus, it curses all men because it shows us we do not measure up to God's perfect standard. So every person apart from Jesus is under that curse of the law. Secondly, we see that Christ became a curse for us. Verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. No one is declared righteous by God before God because of the law. The righteous shall live by faith, but the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us. And now Paul quotes Deuteronomy 21, for it is written, cursed is every one who is hanged on a tree. So as Christ is crucified on the cross, he becomes a curse for us. Listen to what John Gill says. He says, this man, this Jesus, who has made a curse for us, he was one from whom men hid their faces as an abominable person. They called him a sinner. They called him a Samaritan. And they called him a devil. And he was even accursed by the law by becoming its payment for us. He was made under the law and he stood in yours and my legal place. And he had all of your sin and all of my sin, the sin of every believer, imputed to him. Not only was our sin given to him, but he was answerable to that sin. The law found that sin on him, charged him with it, and cursed him for that sin. He says he was treated as such by the justice of God, even by his own father, who spared him not but awoke the sword of justice against him and gave him up into his hands, delivered him up to death, even the accursed death of the 
cross. Jesus Christ became a curse in many ways. He was scorned by men, but ultimately by taking the curse of the law upon himself for sinners. And he did that, we saw there, to redeem us from the law. Christ Jesus became a curse for us that we might be redeemed from the curse of the law. That means a Christian, he has delivered you from its sentence of condemnation. You will never be hurt by it, and you've been delivered from the wrath that is to come. As we read in the book of Hebrews, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So what does this mean for us? How are we to respond to this idea that Jesus became a curse so that we could be redeemed from that curse? Well, we ought to respond with gratitude. Amen. Thankfulness, worship, a life of service given unto him. Not that we can repay him, but as Paul says in Romans 12, that we offer up ourselves as living sacrifice. That's our reasonable service, our acceptable worship. But also then what that means for us is the law, now Christian, is no longer a burden to you, but a blessing. The law of God is no longer a curse or a burden for you, but it is a blessing. You've probably heard people use this verse, we're no longer under law, but under grace, right? We hear that verse a lot, and it's often used for someone to kind of swing as a sword to say, don't talk about sin to me. That's irrelevant because we're not under law, we're under grace, and none of that matters. I think that's a misuse of the passage. What it means is that we're no longer under the law as a covenant. We're under grace now as a covenant. So our relation to God today as Christians is not legal, but it is gracious. The relationship you have with God is marked, if you're in Christ, by grace. So the law is no longer that cruel taskmaster that condemns you, but it now is a guide that teaches you how to honor Christ, your king. The law instructs believers on how to be a faithful Christian, and it communicates with specificity what actual righteousness is. We live in a day of moral relativism, right? My morality is mine. Yours is yours. It's all doesn't matter. It's whatever you think. If I think this is right, then it's right. If you think it's wrong, then it's wrong for you. But there is no absolute standard. The law of God says nonsense to all of that. The creator has given us a law and clearly communicates to us what is righteousness and holiness. Now, the law now is our friend, beloved. It's not a burden anymore. Jesus is my yoke is easy and my burden is light. He gives it to us as a way that we can graciously and obediently follow our Lord in joy and gladness. So Jesus became a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. Number two, Jesus is our Passover lamb. Jesus is our Passover lamb. Let me get back there. It was a day of preparation. It was a day before the Sabbath. They would prepare their food, prepare all those things so they didn't have to work on the Sabbath. They would get everything ready. And so that the bodies would not remain, John 19, 31, 
on the cross, on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken. The men on the cross, Jesus and the two criminals, that their legs might be broken and they might be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who had been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. Now I'm going to say something that I understand for most of you. You'll probably respond and say, duh. But I want to be clear, Jesus Christ really died. Duh, right? (laughs) Jesus Christ really died. This is a truth that we need to believe and know. Now, God cannot die in his divine nature, right? He is eternal. But Jesus in his human nature really ceased to live on that cross. There's multiple heresies out there that tell us Jesus didn't actually die. One of them was docetism getting its root even in John's day, as he writes, comes out of Gnosticism from this idea that bodies and matter is evil, spirit is good. And they, so they, they took that thinking and it made a heresy that said Jesus didn't actually have a body. It looked like a body. You thought it was a body, but it was not a real body because bodies are evil, matter is evil, the spiritual realm is holy. But there's another heresy that's still around today. If you've ever talked to a Muslim, anybody ever heard of the swoon theory? The swoon theory. This is this idea that Jesus didn't die on the cross. He was so weak and incapacitated. They took him off and he laid in the tomb in like a coma for three days. And then he came back and went on with his life. So he didn't actually die. He swooned for three days. The Bible clearly says that Jesus died. Let me tell you why I'm emphasizing this. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says his heart actually ceased to beat and he actually died. Great indeed was the importance of this fact because without a real death, there could be no real sacrifice. Without a real death, there could be no real resurrection. And without a real sacrifice and without a real resurrection, Christianity is on sinking sand and has no true foundation. So as the men go, they go under the instruction of Pilate to break the legs of these men. Now, what is happening here? We talked last week, I believe it was, about the fact that these men, or two weeks ago, that these men would, on the cross, have to push up to open up their chest to breathe because they would be hunched down and getting weaker, and they would come and break a man's legs so that he could no longer push up and he would then die very quickly because there was so much pain. We actually found, 1962, I think, a man on a cross, crucified, dug up in an archaeological dig with both of his shins crushed on the cross, kind of affirming this text. But Jesus had already died. He had already passed away at this point. But John makes a a mention here of a scripture in verse 36. He says, for these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. As we've seen in the gospel of John and everywhere in the Bible, scripture after scripture after scripture being fulfilled, coming to pass through the life, death and resurrection of Jesus. That over and over and over the Old Testament pointed forward 
to the work of Christ. And we see that taking place here. There is no exact Bible verse that says these words precisely, but if you have a reference Bible, that's one with verses in the margin or on the bottom. I'm, I'm, I bet that there's two verses that are cited there for this verse, and that's Exodus 12:46 and Numbers 9:12. So we should look at those. Exodus 12:46. Remember, John said that this happened in this way; his bones weren't broken to fulfill this scripture. Exodus 12:46. Now, this is the institution of the Passover meal. That very first time they took the meal, Exodus 12, 46. It, the lamb, it shall be eaten in one house, and you shall not take any of the flesh outside of the house, and you shall not break any of its bones. Speaking of the Passover lamb. And then we turn to Numbers chapter 9, verse 12. Numbers 9, verse 12, basically the same thing. They shall leave none of it until the morning, nor break any of its bones, according to all the statute for the Passover that they shall keep. The first story is the institution of the Passover. The second verse in, in Numbers is telling them about the memorial meal that they were to have every year that looked back upon the Passover. What is the Passover? What is the point? What is the relevance here in relation to Jesus? What even is the Passover? Maybe you're new to Christianity and this is a new phrase to you. Maybe you're just unfamiliar with the details. The Passover was when God's people, a small tribe, 72 people or so, went to Egypt and they were there and they began to grow in, in numbers and stature. And Pharaoh got concerned that these Hebrews are going to take us over. They're going to they're going to dominate us. Let's enslave them. Very nice guy. Nice idea. So they enslaved the Hebrews and they were enslaved for some 400 plus years. And they cried out to God. God heard their cries and God raises up his man, Moses. Right. Moses goes to Pharaoh and says, let my people come out of this place to worship. Pharaoh refuses and God gives a succession of, of plagues, 10 plagues. And they kind of intensify every time. And on the final plague, God says that all of the firstborn in the land are going to die. Not just the firstborn of the Egyptians, but of all of the firstborn, of the people and of the flocks. Every firstborn in every family is going to die. But God gives his people grace, a way of escape. And he says, take that Passover lamb, that spotless, unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, eat it, destroy what's left, do not break its bones, and take the blood of the Passover and put it over the doorpost of your house. So that when the destroyer came that night to destroy the firstborn, anyone and everyone that was under the blood of that sacrificed lamb, God's wrath passed over, and they were spared. What's the connection to Christ? It's rich, 
with connection to Christ, is it not? As we see, Jesus is a greater Moses, leads his people on a greater exodus. God's people were in a temporal bondage to slavery. Now we are in eternal bondage to sin. He leads his people out of their bondage to sin. He himself is that perfect Passover lamb. He is the one that is without spot and without blemish and any that are covered by his sacrificial death and by his shed blood are spared from his coming judgment and wrath as he will pass over all those that look unto him. Jesus is our Passover lamb. John Calvin says it like this. He was not only the pledge of our redemption, but also the price of it. Because in him, we see accomplished what was formerly exhibited to the ancient people under the figure of the Passover. He says the Jews were reminded that they ought to seek Christ in the things that the law prefigured. The law pointed to the substance in shadowy ways, but it didn't accomplish actual atonement. But Jesus Christ, the perfect Passover lamb slain before the foundation of the world and his shed blood over your soul today frees you from the wrath to come. What does this mean for us? I think firstly, we ought to have gratitude for the Lord Jesus Christ, right? We ought to praise and worship God and his son as he ought to be worshiped. But what it means for you, Christian, is that there is therefore now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation from God the Father for your sin. Now, let's be clear. God chastises his children as any good father chastises his children. He brings his rod of correction through providence with afflictions and stripes to conform you into the image of Jesus. He does that because he loves you, and that is your greatest good to look like his son and to see sin purged from your life. But you today, beloved, are free eternally from the judgment that sin demands. You can live knowing that Jesus Christ covers you. His blood covers you, protects you. It is a shield and a refuge for all that have it over the door post of their soul. Amen. He is our Passover lamb. And lastly, Jesus is our double cure. He is our double cure. These brothers just sang, uh, led us in worship. And we sang that song, Rock of Ages. Rock of Ages. That song was written by Augustus M. Toplady in 1776. Significant date for us as Americans. Listen to the words again. Rock of ages, cleft for me. Let me hide myself in thee. Let the water and the blood from thy wounded side which flowed be of sin the double cure. Save from wrath and make me pure. That song speaks of the very scripture that we're looking at today. If I can read that section again, verse 34. Now, his, he was deceased already. They did not break his legs, but verse 34, one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. 
and at once there came out blood and water. He who saw it has borne witness. His testimony is true, and he knows that he is telling the truth that you also may believe. For these things took place that the scripture might be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And again, another scripture, they will look on him whom they have pierced. Now, what's happening here? The soldier takes a spear, stabs it into the side of Jesus, and it says that water and blood flow out of his side. Now, different doctors and medical people have speculated. Some have said that the pericardial sac, the membrane around the heart with fluid, was pierced, and water and blood came out. Some have said that it was the membrane around his intestines that was pierced, ruptured, and water and blood came out. I have the answer. Water and blood came out of his side. <laughs> Some say it's a miracle. I don't necessarily think it's a miraculous thing God did. But the question is, are we to see any sort of symbolism in this water and blood flowing from his side? Augustus, top lady, seemed to think that. We also sang there is a fountain. That hymn writer seemed to think there was some symbolism. The scripture reference that is here, and Dustin, you actually read that was good on the top of that song, one of those verses, Zechariah. He's quoting Zechariah 12. Let's turn there. It's, it's about a book or two before Matthew. Zechariah, one of the minor prophets. Just before Malachi. So Zechariah 12.10 is the verse that John cites where he says this was to fulfill this scripture. It says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. So he's going to pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace. And then chapter 13, verse 1. On that day, there shall be a fountain opened for the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and uncleanness. So Zechariah speaks of a fountain that's going to be open, metaphorical fountain that will be opened. And then we read in John that out of the side of Jesus flows water and blood here at his death. I know I've been quoting a lot today, but I want to read a couple quotes. The first one is from Matthew Henry, Puritan commentator, Matthew Henry. He says, the water and the blood that flowed out of him were significant. They signify the two great benefits which we all partake of, justification and sanctification. Blood for the remission of sins, water for regeneration. Blood for atonement, water for purification. Blood and water, he says, were used very much in the Old Testament. Guilt of sin that is contracted by man must be expiated, removed by blood. Stains 
contracted must be done away by the water of purification. And he says, these two always go together. You are sanctified, you are justified, and they both flowed from the pierced side of our Redeemer. And then John Calvin, he says that by these words, he means that Christ brought the true atonement and the true washing. These things were prefigured in the law, the Old Testament, by symbols, sacrifices, and washings. In sacrifices, blood atoned for sin and was a ransom for appeasing God's wrath. And in washings, they were a picture of true holiness and the remedies for taking away uncleanness and removing the pollutions of the flesh. What does all that mean? It means that Christ is our double cure. He has solved the dual problem of sin, your legal guilt and your spiritual corruption. In the Old Testament, blood was always involved in the atoning of sin. It had to be shed. It had to flow. Life had to be demanded in the sacrifice. And Christ has fulfilled the animal sacrifice that only anticipated and prefigured what he would do. And in the Old Testament, washings symbolized one being spiritually clean before God. And Christ has done and is doing what the water in the Old Testament could only foreshadow and symbolize. God bless you. As Ezekiel says, I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. Chapter 36, verse 25. So, beloved, as we consider here the death of our Lord, God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in his body, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. Romans 8, 3 and 4. As I recap Jesus Christ became a curse for you. He took the curse of the law upon himself. He bore its guilt and shame, and he did this to redeem you from that curse. Jesus Christ is your Passover lamb. He offered up himself as an unblemished sacrifice. His shed blood and vicarious death cover your soul. So that when God sends his final judgment upon sin, he will pass over you. And lastly, he is your double cure. His blood removed the legal guilt of the law and his spirit has washed you and made you new in him. And you are now being conformed to his image. Praise be to God. I pray that these truths would not be abstract ideas but gospel realities that would be driven deep into your heart, that they would be gracious, concrete promises of God that you live by when the storms and trials of life come. Amen.